I told some of my elders and uh, musicians in our church in Vancouver that I was coming to do a conference for worship leaders and stuff like that, and they laughed because I am not known for my musical prowess. In fact, I have two major fears in life. One is, and it both focuses on this gadget. One would be, and it has happened, um, the ladies in the nursery who are already having a tough enough time, and my mic is left on, and they're getting a paparazzi-style uh, song from me alone. <laughs> the other is actually going to the bathroom, and somehow the microphone being left on. That hasn't happened yet. But those are two of my great fears in life, and I'd appreciate it if the sound guys could keep those from not being realized. I was going to um, ask, and it seems like this is the occasion to ask questions, who has ever heard a talk on the independence of God? And then I realized there'd probably be about a hundred guys who'd just come back from the independent God conference and say, yeah. I don't think it's a topic that you've probably heard a great deal on in terms of uh, a sermon or a sermon series or a conference, but as I was speaking to Bob, we thought this might be an interesting topic for you to uh, learn about and refresh your minds if you know a great deal about it. And so uh, that is what we will be looking at today. I did actually, when I thought about this talk, I for some reason, and I don't know why, I had the song from Kelly Clarkson, Little Miss Independent, in my mind. <laughs> And while some of you probably woke up this morning and maybe listened to a good worship song, I uh, did a thorough exegesis of the lyrics of that song <laughs> on my phone to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. And I regret to inform you that my talk has remained unchanged and this part hasn't been able to help in any significant way. So what can we say about the independence of God? Well, uh, it seems to me that a lot of us, we want to grab certain attributes from God and not others. In other words, there are certain things about God's attributes we wish we could have and others that we keep at arm's length. And in fact, sometimes, the attributes that we want from God are the attributes that we actually have no business taking from God. Like sovereignty, as we attempt to control people and make ourselves in charge. Or uh, omniscience, and it is becoming one of the great tragedies of our time that we are starting to have this idea that we possess a sort of omniscience. We have a phone at our hands that can tell us anything that we need to know about anything in this world, that it is a pseudo-omniscience, of course. Uh, but that's the reality we live with. You'll notice that not many um, people go around selling Encyclopedia Britannica sets at people's doors anymore, because we already know everything, or at least we think we do. What about God's eternal and changing nature? The industry of not just cosmetics, but plastic surgery, or even just in Vancouver, especially the Pacific Northwest, where if you are not eating 
a pound of kale a week, you are uh, not loving yourself because we don't want to grow old. We don't want to look older than we are. We want to be unchanging in our youth, in our appearance, in our glory. I would make a comment about incomprehensibility, but I think some preachers know exactly what I'm speaking about. <laughs> and we also struggle with power. Not just our phones, but a credit card where we're able to go now. And I remember being in South Africa as a boy and going up to Zambia and having a credit card and having to run it through that machine. But now we just go around and we tap and we tap and we tap. And it's like God in Genesis 1, let it be. Let it be. And things just magically come into existence because we tap. And it gives us this feeling of immense power. But there's another attribute we really have no business taking from God, and yet it seems to me it is the attribute whereby we are probably most guilty, and that is God's independence. That is God's independence in the sense that He is in need of absolutely nothing to sustain Himself. We talk about rational atheism versus practical atheism. Rational atheism is the belief simply stated that there is not enough evidence that we can rationally believe that there is a God. But then there's practical atheism, and it may be a person who believes there is a God, they're a deist, but their life demonstrates that God really doesn't exist in any meaningful way to them. The same is true of dependency. There is rational independency where someone might say, well, I don't need God. I don't need anything to help me. But the sin that Christians struggle with, even in Christ, is the sin of practical independency, living as though we don't really need God as much as we actually need God. And yet, our dependency upon God is one of the hardest things to deny. It's one of the hardest things to deny for anybody if you just think about the fact that you need air, that you need water, that you need heat, that you need food, and you can go on and on, that you need friends, and that you need education, that you need teachers, you need coaches, you need instruments to play music, you need so many things. You are a dependent creature. And yet we come to God and we learn that God is independent. And as a dependent creature, it's hard to really fathom what it can be like to be truly independent. That is, needing absolutely nothing. So what does it mean for God to be independent? It means that He is eternally self-existent and eternally self-sufficient. That word eternal, that God has always been and always will be, that He sees everything in an eternal instant, that what happened thousands of years ago or what will happen five billion years from now is as clear to Him in His eye at this very moment as it ever will be, for He is eternal. He has always been. I've seen a few young people 
here today. I confess that sometimes in my better moments in high school, I would lie in bed and think about the fact that God has always existed, and how could that be? I had lots of friends who did drugs, they did marijuana, they smoked pot, they did those things, and I can assure you that if you're ever confronted with that temptation, just say, you know, I'm going to think about God's eternity tonight. I'll be just fine. <laughs> that God has always been. And that He, in His self-existence, is unchanging in that. That He's unchanging in His self-sufficiency. That it cannot ever be anything else than God is who He is. He does not change and that he's powerful in his self-existence and he's powerful in an unchanging being that he's not weak he's not looking for something he is powerful but he's also loving in his self-existence and he is loving in his self-sufficiency because he is not just god he is the triune god It doesn't sound always so nice when you speak of someone loving themselves above all things. And yet when you think about God loving himself, you're not to think of a crass God whereby he just glories in himself, but you're to think of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all loving each other with infinite delight and happiness. And so God in his unchanging independence is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in loving, unchanging independence and self-sufficiency. And that's what makes them blessed. That's what makes them happy. That's what makes them joyful, that they are able to love one another, be satisfied in one another, and need nothing else to make them better than who they are, for they are perfect. One God, three persons. I read this quote, God's attributes exist together in perfect harmony, perfect balance, perfect cooperation, with no contradiction, no confusion, and no diminishing of their glory forever. You like that, Bob? Yeah, you wrote that. <laughs> is his love, is his unchangeability, is his omniscience, is his incomprehensibility, is his infinity. He is independent. And that means that God does not borrow from anyone or anything. But on the flip side, it means that if anyone else exists, they are a borrower. They are dependent. And as borrowers, we will one day have to pay back to God. Every human being, 
And the question is whether you will pay back to God from all that you have borrowed by enjoying his sun and his moon and his stars and his earth and everything else, or whether Christ in your place will pay back what you cannot. That you are a borrower because you are a dependent creature. And there's a song that I wanted to look at briefly, Psalm 36, verse 7 to 9. And there's a few things we could note about this psalm, and you can read the full context on your own sometime. But in verse 7 we read, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. And I just want you to notice something that is connected here regarding God's love. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. But those words, for with you is the fountain of life. Do you see, what we receive from God is connected first and foremost to his love. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. And because he is a loving God, he is the fountain of life. So that anyone or anything that has life has received the love of God. His giving, because he alone is able to truly give and not need anything in return, must therefore be an act of pure love. And that is why you can read in the New Testament and so many other places elsewhere, in him we live and we move and we have our being because he alone is independent and we are dependent. Now what does it mean to be dependent? If there is an independent God and we are dependent creatures, what does it mean to be dependent? Or what should it mean to be dependent? Now, who do you think is the most consciously dependent creature or person who has ever lived? Who is the most dependent person who has ever lived? And it may surprise you to find out that the answer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who in his divinity is truly independent, in need of nothing, became for our sakes, dependent in need of everything so that we who are dependent might learn what true dependence looks like. Now there are a number of places we could go to see this, but one of my favorite sections in all of God's Word are the servant songs in Isaiah. These servant songs are descriptions of God's servant, God's servant that will bring back the tribes of Israel to God, God's servant who will be rewarded, God's servant who will serve him. Christ is primarily identified in the book of Isaiah as a servant, and it begins in chapter 42. And I want you to just notice that as you go through the servant songs, there are four of them, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then chapter 53. Most are, of course, aware of the servant song in chapter 53. You can't really understand chapter 53 unless you understand what comes before that, especially in chapter 42. 
And I want you to notice the way in which God is describing his servant, his Messiah. And the way in which he describes him in the first three servant songs is primarily as one who is dependent. So for example, in verse one of chapter 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, whom I, the Father, uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. What does God do? He upholds his servant and puts his spirit upon him. In chapter 49, verse 1, notice the words, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And here, read carefully, and my God has become my strength. That's dependence. It's when your God has become your strength. It is when you can say, my God, who upholds me. And then you get to chapter 50 and begin at verse 4. The Lord has given me. Not I have given myself. Not I have developed myself. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. In other words, that I may know how to sustain the dependent. That they may know what it is like to also be servants of Yahweh. To bring back Jacob to him, that Israel may be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And then you go back to chapter 50. Notice this. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Why was Christ such a good preacher? You thought about that? The lazy answer is he's God. That's a lazy answer. The biblical answer is that in total dependence upon his father, each morning he was awakened by his God to be taught, to be instructed. And he even says, verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. This is the servant speaking. This is Jesus, the Son of God. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Twice he says, the Lord God helps me. Now it's interesting because when you read the servant song in chapter 42, chapter 49, and chapter 50, the emphasis is clearly upon God helping his servant, sustaining his servant, blessing his servant, teaching his servant. Do you get to chapter 53? Do you know what's so remarkable? It's as though all of that help disappears. It's though all of that care disappears. And the emphasis 
seems to be entirely upon what God is doing to that servant. Because that servant has taken your place as the guilty one. That servant has become sin for you. And that servant had to be helped in those earlier chapters so that chapter 53 would be a reality that he would fulfill. You don't just get to read chapter 53. You have to get there via the earlier songs to make any sense of why he can go to the cross because all of his life had been a preparation whereby his God, his independent God, had been sustaining him so that he could actually go through with everything that God required. And so you get to the New Testament and Christ's own testimony bears this out, especially in the Gospel of John. So in chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. He's totally aware of his dependence upon his Father, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then in verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now clearly there's something greater going on than just Christ speaking in terms of his humanity. This goes way back into eternity in terms of what has been called the eternal generation of the Son. I'm not going to speak about that, but I want you to understand that it's not just speaking about eternal relations. This is speaking about the fact that Christ was deeply conscious of the fact that all of the life, all of the breath, all of the strength, all of the intellect, all of his spiritual ability was because the Father had given him such. So that in chapter 6, verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. I live because of the independent one. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. What is Christ saying? Christ is saying, I depend upon the Father. You must also depend upon the same Father. In chapter 12, verse 49, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. In other words, Jesus can say, I only speak the words the Father has given me. That's dependence. Imagine being able to say that as a Christian. Imagine being able to say, that because I have the mind of Christ, I only speak the words the Father has given me. So you get to Philippians chapter 2, that great servant song of the New Testament. That he did not consider equality with God something to be in. You can use a number of different words here, but one word I like is he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. That is to say, he did not consider his equality with God something that he could take advantage of, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being fully God, 
did not keep Christ, the God-man, from being a fully dependent Savior for your sake and for mine. So you look at his temptation. What was his temptation in the wilderness but a living out of true dependence upon God? He was offered everything. He was told as a man who was really hungry, famished, turn these stones into bread. And what is his answer? Well, I'm divine. This isn't really a problem for me right now. I'm not actually hungry. I'm just doing this because it will sound good at a conference a couple of thousand years from now. He was as close to starvation as one could possibly be. And yet, what does he say? Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the Lord's mouth. That is dependence. That is not self-sufficiency. And so Christ's life can be summarized as one who learned not just true obedience through what he suffered, but true dependence by living each day for God and with God and in God. So then what does this mean for us to be godly? What does it mean for us to be true Christians? The light of the world. It means that your Christian life can be summarized as total dependence upon the Father through Christ by the Spirit. Total dependence upon God the Father through Christ by the Spirit. I was thinking of writing a book, I don't know if you'd like the title, The Purpose Driven Life. I think it would sell wonderfully. But then I thought better of that. And I thought, I wonder how well a book, A Total Dependent Life, would sell. You see, there's a subtle difference here. And with all due respect to the book that does exist, there is a bit of a difference in emphasis. The purpose-driven life versus the total dependent life. You see where the accent might fall on the purpose-driven life? On you. I'm not talking about the book again. I don't want any, I don't want any fights when I leave. I have to get back to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see why such a book would sell so well? Is because we're so self-consumed. We want purpose for ourselves. We want that purpose-driven life. And then you think about the total life. And where is the accent on? It's not on you. It's on God. And we don't like that. You might say you like that, but we don't like that. 
We want purpose. We want to do it. And we don't want to be dependent. It's actually the most difficult thing in the world. So Christ actually has to teach his disciples to do what? To pray in order to ask and to seek and to knock, to receive. He has to teach his disciples to ask of God. Why does he have to teach them that? Because it's not something that comes to us naturally. We have to be taught. God should not have to command us to ask of him, but he does. And when Jesus is talking about what it's like to enter the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 to 4, what does he say? Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? Because there's something about being a child that is characteristic of the Christian life. And one of those things is what? They are totally dependent. I thought about saying something and it went like this. It does mean, incidentally, that I guess uh, all baptisms are infant baptisms. If you think about it. <laughs> but I realized where I was going to speak and I thought, I'm not going to say that. Unless you become like a little child, unless you become totally dependent upon your Father through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, well, you will not enter the kingdom of God. This is not a negotiable. God's independence means that you have to be dependent. And it's not up for debate. It's one of those serious sins that believers partake of, that we don't live as our Savior lived, that we don't live how God wants us to live. And sin is really nothing else but doing our will instead of God's will. In the beginning, really, Satan tempted Adam and Eve with a type of independence. You can actually be like God. You don't need to depend upon Him for what is best for you, what you need to know, what you don't need to receive, and so on. You can be like God. You can be independent. You can have access to this and that, and you won't even need God anymore. And they take, they want to be like God, independent. So when Paul speaks to the Ephesians of their former life, he says, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, that characterizes life outside of Christ. When you do what you want to do and think that you are able to do what you want to do in your own strength. And that self-love and that desire of independence is at the root of all sin in your life. And that's the great controversy between God and man. Who will be God? Who will be the one who is able to offer what only he can offer? Will it be you or will it be God? 
And we're constantly being reminded of this from the beginning to the end. You get to the Proverbs, for example, and in chapter 3, this really struck me. In verse 5 to 8, we're told, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't be independent. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your straight paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In other words, to the degree that you are dependent upon God is the degree to which you will be blessed by God. And the degree to which you turn from God and seek your own independence is the degree to which you will be blessed by yourself. I'm not entirely confident about what that will look like for every single person in this room. Now, I do want to close by saying this, that God's independence is good news because God doesn't need us. In and of himself, he doesn't need us. If he needed us, you might wonder about his love for us. But since he doesn't need us, you don't need to wonder about his love for you. When we do things for people, we can do things out of love, but it's never exclusively in the sense that God does things out of love. Because whatever we do, because of sin indwelling in us, there's always going to be sparks of self-interest. God has no spark of unholy self-interest. He doesn't need you. He never needed you. So why would he create you except that he loves you? And someone once asked, well, why did God create us? And the answer was because he loved us. And why did he love us? And the answer can't go any farther back than to simply say he loved us. But I do think we can tweak that answer a little bit. God loved his son. And God loved his son in such a way that he gave to his son a people whom God loves and whom the Son would love. And you get to the crescendo of, of Christ's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and you get to the full circle of why this is all happening. Why does God love us? And Jesus says, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. That's the most comforting thing you can say at a funeral, by the way. That Christ has gained more than you can ever lose when someone goes to be with him. Because his prayer has been answered. I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am to see my glory. Why? Does God love you? Because he loves 
his son. And why does he love his son? Because he has given all things into his son's hand. And his son, as the God-man, lived a truly dependent life upon the Father and has so therefore received everything from the Father. Nothing accepted, including you and I. And the question is, will we be like our Savior? Or will we be like the old Adam, snatching and grabbing and ultimately losing? Or will we receive freely through the Son and gain 